has a potentially huge impact, positive impact on that sphere, whether you're talking about clinics, doctors, pet owners, and where not to be viewed as competition, but more of an ancillary, ancillary service that can help grow a practice. That was Dr. Shadi Arefich on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, powered by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with Dr. Shadi Arefage, who is a board-certified surgeon. And, you know, interesting enough, as I mentioned that, I didn't even think to ask if there was some sort of surgery he specialized in or if he's just board-certified in all surgery. Anyways, maybe that's the case, and that's just my lack of knowledge of the certifications in the veterinary medicine space. But he's also one of the founders of Vet Triage, which is a telemedicine service. What is fascinating about, and what I love about this podcast, and I can't tell you, this is what keeps me going. Regardless of any, if nobody listened, I would still do these podcasts just to kind of have these kinds of conversations. When I when I think of somebody that runs a vet triage company. I wouldn't even think that we would talk about tort reform in in law and issues with potential, what are some changes and some challenges that doctors are facing from the the veterinary medical boards and how do we go about positive change in a lot of these areas. I, you know, you would think about, I don't know, telemedicine and that would be the general conversation. And while we do talk a lot about telemedicine and, and the change that is potentially needed and a lot of problems. And if you listen to an old episode I did a long time ago, uh, with, uh, Dr. Roland Tripp, we talk a lot about the potential of changes in the future of uh, in telemedicine. We get into that a lot, but I have to say, when I say that this podcast is about amazing people doing amazing things in veterinary medicine, Dr. Shadi Arefage is one of those people. Um, thank you to Nick at Pet Pro Supply for the introduction because Dr. Arefage is amazing. And we talk a lot about how we need people like himself to really stick his neck out and make change and to help uh, not only provide a betterment for the industry as a whole, but pet parents and pets everywhere. And I know that the telemedicine space, especially from a legal standpoint, is there's a lot of controls and we've seen some changes and some temporary uh, legislation changes with COVID and, and doctors working from home. But I think that uh, what Dr. Shadi is doing and how he's really trying to show that this can be done in, in a right way and in a way that is a betterment for everybody. And so, again, super fascinating conversation, uh, again, to really get behind why people do the things that they do and what makes them special. And I think this episode really is a culmination of that and everything that I hope that these podcasts are about. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by Luca 
Veterinary Data Security, where our mission is to help veterinary practice owners everywhere realize the value of their data and help them take the necessary steps to protect it. So if you need help protect data in your practice, the first thing you can do is go to luca.vet and download our five simple steps to protect your practice ebook, which is free. So again, go to www.luca.vet and look for our five simple steps to start protecting your practice. I get it. Things happen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, excited to have you on. And so may, where I always like to start is, you know, your background and how, how did you end up in veterinary medicine in the first place? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I began when I was 16, 17 years old. I just fell in love with biology. I had these two incredible high school biology teachers. They just inspired me to love science. And I had never felt that feeling before. And so initially when I was looking into what I want to do, if I go to college, I was looking at maybe doing, maybe being a biology teacher. I thought maybe zoology, like I like studying animals. That was kind of fun. And at the time we didn't have any internet. There was no, there weren't really any, any home computers. So you had Encyclopedia Britannica. So I was Googling, I was sorry, Googling. I was looking up in the books, different career choices that revolve around animals. And I was looking up zoology and biology teacher. And I was like, oh, I'm not really impressed by them. And I kind of had the thought about maybe, maybe there's a way to do medicine with animals, not knowing there were actually veterinarians in existence. And then my mom brought home an application for a vet job at a hospital in the area. And I started volunteering. And initially, I just hated it. I hated it so much. And then they hired a, a young new graduate, uh, Dr. Mike, who'd come in every Wednesday, I believe, and he would do surgeries. And he wasn't a board certified surgeon, but at the time, I didn't know what that, any, that was even a thing. I just knew that this cool, young, hip guy who just graduated is doing surgeries. And I started helping him in the OR, the operating room. And I, and I, I was floored. I'm like, this is what I thought veterinary medicine was going to be. You're actually fixing pets, not like doing just sort of home care and maintenance stuff and husbandry issues, which kind of bored me. Obviously now I see the importance of that care too. So he inspired me to pursue veterinary medicine. And so I went to undergrad was a, um, a pre-med major, went to biology major, and um, graduated, then went to Cornell. I, so I graduated SUNY Binghamton, a public school in upstate New York, in 2001, got into Cornell University for vet med at 2002, graduated 2006, decided I want to specialize in surgery, and from there did a one-year internship to 2007 at Angel Memorial Animal Hospital in Boston, Jamaica Plain. And then from there, I did, a, I did two more surgery internships that were each a year in Long Island Veterinary Specialist in Plainview. After that, I stayed on at Long Island Veterinary Specialist and did a three-year residency to become board certified. Finally passed my surgery boards, got the credentials, and I've been doing surgery ever since. Since, since then, I've uh, published research papers. I've lectured all across the United States. I've done surgery all across the United States. I've now um, ran my own surgical uh, practice. And then in LA, most recently, I ran the surgical hospital, the, the specialty hospital rather. So I oversaw not only surgery, but also internal medicine, oncology. And then now I ventured into the world of telemedicine with vet triage. So I've been a veterinarian for about 14 years. That's amazing. So how did you, so as we're talking right now, you're in Vegas. So how did you end up in Las Vegas? So after I left the, um, the hospital in Los Angeles, after being there about a year and a half, creating and running this the specialty side, I decided 
to change careers a bit. And I had this idea maybe two and a half, three years ago to, to make telemedicine more of a thing in the, in the vet field. It's been underutilized forever. Um, not unlike the human side where they've been using telemedicine for a while. And so I had the idea kind of in the back of my mind and it just so happened that the stars aligned where in uh, early this year, I decided to try and launch it. And so because I've always loved, I used to live in Las Vegas prior as a surgeon at the specialty hospital here. And I, I, I was upset that I had, that I left for work. I love living in Vegas. And so I decided, you know what, let me go back to Las Vegas to launch this, this company because there's no state tax there anyway. So I'll save money and it's cheaper cost of living and startups who knows how long I'm going to be basically shelling out cash until I can finally break even and then start making some money. So let me live, live as cheaply as possible in a state that has no state tax. And I love living there. So I moved to Las Vegas. It was really a very easy decision to make. That's awesome. So are you still doing surgeries or are you focused hundred percent on vet triage? One hundred percent vet triage now. One hundred percent. Um, I, I, um, am speaking to my colleagues at Long Island veterinary specialists currently about maybe helping them out, do some shifts, things like that. Um, I'm open to the idea of, of getting my hands wet in, in the OR, um, or, or to any capacity in the veterinary hospital. But if I can, if I can stick with doing vet triage 100% of the time, it, it requires that level of attention anyway, until it gets to a point where it's sort of you know, autonomous. So at this point, I'm on 100% uh, telemedicine with vet triage, but I'm open to the idea if a facility needs help or something, if I can squeeze it in, if I can make it happen, I, I would. So my friend, uh, Debbie Boone, I'm not sure if you know who she is. She's a She's an influential consultant and she's been a practice manager and she's really involved in the space, but she has this interesting project called the pivot. And she talks to a lot of people who have pivoted in their careers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so I started in technology, went to law school and then decided to pivot back to technology. Now here here I am in technology and vet and vet med. But, um, so I'm interested in the, what was the pivot for you? What was the catalyst? Cause you know, you've had, you had listening to you, you know, at 16 years old, you knew you wanted to do something with science, right. And you're really involved with it. And then, then you get this like essentially kind of an internship at a, at a vet hospital, you start helping in the OR and you've really kind of developed this like really deep career doing surgery and being involved in surgery and the actual medicine side of things. So now you've kind of, what was the pivot that made you think, oh, I want to get in the technology space and look at medicine from a different angle? I've always had this, this sort of entrepreneurial personality and I'm always thinking of new ideas. I mean, I, and, and once I have the, the, the financial support, I have so many other ideas that can help improve the veterinary world. So there's that part of it, but also the other part of it is to the veterinary culture. It's changed over the past decade and a half and not for the better. And there are, I have plenty of examples, uh, real world examples where we've just, we've just sort of ignored or been an active catalyst in, in ruining the, what should be a positive culture in a field that should be a good, a feel good field of veterinary medicine. So I've seen the transformation over time and it's kind of wears on you after a while. And if you, if you are becoming a, in, a, in a position of, of power as a, as a, as a hospital owner, which I have, and and running a, a specialty side or running a particular department in a veterinary hospital. And even despite that level of management, you still can't seem to get the culture under control. There are problems, there are deep seated problems in the profession. And so at some point it becomes disheartening because you have, you yourself are working 
as hard as your staff is working, which is, which is long hours under stressful emotional conditions with people who have sick pets, combining that with the, with the, with the technological age that you're a part of now, allowing clients the ability to Google medical information, to write, to, to um, post Yelp reviews and Google reviews about the hospital, some good, mostly bad, it's affecting the psyche of the veterinary field. So, so we internally are negatively affecting the veterinary culture and in any given clinic or hospital. And then you have all the technological advancements that allow clients a, a space to speak up when they're unhappy about services. And that feeds into the negative culture of the veterinary clinic or hospital. And so it becomes this sort of whirlwind of negativity. And it doesn't seem clear to me that anybody in the, upper enchilance of, of veterinary medicine and these organizations that we have are doing much about the culture. So there, so there's that aspect of it too. Telemedicine is fantastic because you can, you can work from home, you can work your own hours. You don't have any follow-up with the pet owners. The pet owners are nothing but appreciative of your work. It's like doing what you, what you wanted to do in the veterinary field. You're helping animals. The pet owners are thankful. Done deal. It's great. It's a feel-good job, you know, and you can you can work whatever hours you want and make a decent living. And so, it, it the culture really is it, it turned turned me off to it. And I've I've worked every part of a veterinary hospital: the receptionist, the assistants, the technicians, the doctor. I've done all of it. Owner, um, and it's it's throughout that there's problems. So I would love to touch on that a little bit. And um, as I say this. I have to say this because I know he's listening, but Josh, you made it into another episode. So uh, as you were talking about culture, uh, my good friend, Josh Weissman, he runs Flourish Veterinary Consulting. And uh, he was actually the first person I ever interviewed. And as I was thinking about putting this project together, but what is interesting is that you talk about this idea that there's just no, there's a lot of issues with culture. And I have seen like what it, the transition in this project really has started, it really kind of started out about what was the business side of veterinary medicine. And for me, I realized what was more exciting were the people behind the business, right? Like, so vet triage is great. And I think you guys are doing some amazing things, but what I think is really important is the people behind it. And let's tell those stories because that's what it, in the end makes the product really amazing. And the more I've done this, again, this idea of culture in the hospital comes up and the people problems and yeah. And the only, and besides, I guess, besides Josh, the only person I mentioned, which was Debbie earlier, they're really the only two people I know that are working to try to change the culture. Um, and I'm actually, I guess, to uh, maybe uh, name drop or show some clout, you know, luckily enough, Josh is writing a book with the, with AHA. So the American animal, whatever that, that I'm, I'm brain farting on the acronym of what that means, but the AHA accreditation, they're actually writing a book on how practice managers can really approach better culture and, and, and change in the practice. So from your perspective, you had this drive and this goal to be that you're really dedicated to surgery and you want to be board certified and you, it kind of seems like you had this drive to kind of be the best, right? Like you're like, I want to do this. And you've had a lot of different roles and a lot of different doors and opportunities, but yet that culture kind of burned you out. And you made the comment, you know, a lot of practices can't seem to get the culture under control. So I would love to hear more about your thoughts on that and what were your experiences. And maybe if there's a practice owner that's listening, maybe they can take some nuggets out of this to maybe make some change in their own practice. Sure. The, 
the um, culture aspect of a hospital is much easier to, to foster when you start off with a positive one. It's like anything else. It's much easier to just do it right from the get-go rather than try and fix it later. And culture is, is, is like a great example of that because it's such a complex, difficult thing to develop in a positive manner. It's even, it's even more difficult to fix once it's messed up. So um, one of the things that we're lacking in the veterinary field is, is proper education on how to appropriately manage the individuals in the field. And it's not just a matter of being appropriately trained to be able to handle conflict, put out fires, cultivate positivity, but the veterinary individuals are also a unique set of people. They went into the profession with the primary goal of being, of being compassionate towards animals. That's the primary goal. It's not to make money, it's not to have easy hours. It's, it's not to, to um, not grow in their field or, or as a person. They love pets, they love animals, and they went in with that mentality. So we already are starting off with individuals who are in charge, who are not appropriately trained to cultivate a positive culture and maintain it. But we also have individuals who seem to forget why anybody in the veterinary field, regardless of position, ever joined the field. So that's right off what we're starting off with. Then when, it, when the culture does become more on the negative side, we don't seem to invest the time and money and education into trying to correct it. Um, and and part, of the, part of the issue at that level is listening to your staff, finding out what it is they, that they want, what is making them unhappy. It's not always we need to get paid more. It's not always compensation or benefits. It's not because they're doing this job out of passion. So there's a deep-seated problem then in that facility when you have the majority of, of staff being unhappy working there. So we start off the bat with, 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 with managers who are not really trained appropriately, who don't understand the staff that are in there. And then you have ones who turn sour. You, we, we have this, this, this ability to, or rather propensity to not invest appropriate time and money, even though we know there's a problem there. That, and that's sort of the, the over, overarching issues as, as I see them. We have plenty of studies and surveys that are done at, with companies, organizations like, like, like AHA, AVMA, who, who've looked at the, the, the trends. There's plenty. There's every year there's a, a consensus that's published that talks about the tendencies. You know, what are the depression rates? What do people think about their jobs? Do they have enough responsibility? What do they need to be happy? All these things, suicide rates, right? All these things are there. And I don't, I don't see implementation of the data. We just sort of collect it and publish it. And then it's, it sits there. Well, you know, what's interesting is you also talked about, you know, it made me, I wrote down, you know, you talked about compensation and this idea, it's not always about money. And what is fascinating is I think not this year because it was canceled because of COVID, but the year before I was at um, Texas A&M and they do this. I don't, have you been to the Veterinary Innovation Summit that they hold down there? No, I have not. Oh, it's great. It's, it's definitely worth it. And especially now as somebody that's involved in kind of uh, a technology and in, in providing a service, if it comes around, I think it's going to come around back next year, but you should definitely should go. Um, but what was interesting is I've always been fascinated with the vet tech problem in veterinary medicine, 
because vet techs have a five-year lifespan in veterinary medicine. So they invest thirty to $40,000 or whatever to get certified, depending on how much the school, schools cost these days. And it's not that they work at your practice for five years and then leave. They leave the industry as a whole, right? And so I've been very fascinated. Well, what's going on here? Why is this ha- what's happening? And like everybody else, I thought, oh, it's because they can go to Home Depot and stock shelves and make the same amount of money, right? Mm-hmm. But as I've learned, and you know, again, Josh, I'm mentioning you again, and working with Josh and really understanding, like, as I'm building Luca, how do I build the right culture in the right place? And what are my values? And thinking, and again, being intentional about culture, you're right that it isn't about compensation. But to bring it back to the Veterinary Innovation Summit, I sat in a room and it was, we were looking at the NAFTA study. So it's, and we were talking about attrition rates in hospitals. And so the NAFTA study from 2016 interviewed a bunch of vet techs, you know, and it really was trying to understand the heart of the issue. What was interesting is there was a line there that said the number one reason vet techs were leaving was lack of support from ownership. And then there was an, and then the second one was pay. And then there's some other stuff, but all anybody could see in the room especially people who were practice managers or, or, or practice owners were compensation. That was all that they saw. And I had to stand up and I'm like, don't you guys realize that the number one thing in the survey, go back a couple pages here, says it was lack of support from ownership. And really it's just this idea of building a culture and supporting the staff is more important than how much we pay them. Pays, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil. So that's a whole nother conversation and it is a part of the equation but that they are told us that again, it's this lack of lack of support from ownership. Absolutely, I mean, the veterinary technician is is a, is a unique place to be in a veterinary hospital because you're not you're not quite management, although you, you can be. You're certainly not just providing basic assistance because you're knowledgeable. You know, it's it's equivalent to to a nurse in the human field, uh, or at minimum, a, phys- a physician's assistant, a PA. But it's really, really, they are our nurses in the field, and even nurses in the human field, they do a lot of the work. They're very intelligent. They're very hardworking. They're 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 trained appropriately, and they're working hard, doing their thing. They are the equivalent for us. So, veterinary technicians are interesting because there there is to me the way the way I see it. There's all different levels of a technician in terms of what kind of prior education they've had. Obviously, you want them to be licensed in, as a veterinary technician. Not every state requires them to be licensed, that tax, right? So you have individuals that are coming with maybe a high school degree, maybe a college degree, maybe none. They are maybe licensed as veterinary technicians, maybe not. They, you, they range from the really young to look on the older side. A lot of them, are the majority are going to be females. And so you do have a, a number of of individuals who also are kind of single moms or moms and and they're doing this for the passion there's a variety of uh, the, the demographic is is there's a variation but there's still there's there's still a narrowing of that and then 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 they're they're thrown into a field where they are the, the more they work the more patients can be taken care of the more lucrative it is for the hospital and that becomes a struggle between being busy but also sacrificing to some degree patient care, which ties into compassion, and you end up sort of burning the candle at both ends. And to to your point about the five years, the veterinary technician, there's also a a ceiling to how much you can compensate them. There are also the ceiling to how much they can emotionally 
and physically handle over a certain number of years. Their turnover rate is crazy for veterinary technicians. There are plenty of hospitals that can barely keep them one year. Then you have others that have technicians that have been there for 10, 15 plus years. And depending on where you're at in that, in that uh, scale, there's different problems that you're facing with, but there's problems all along the, the scale. So, so, so it's no wonder they have a, a fairly short expiration date and the ones that are there for a long time, they, they sometimes, and it's not all, but sometimes they end up being the, the ones of the many sources of a negative culture because you get worn out, you're, there's emotional fatigue, you hit your ceiling for compensation, you've been there so long that you, you know how it's run, there's never going to be change here. It, it, it ends up becoming this, this, this negative cycle. So it's, it's a very interesting world. And, and I, I'm glad that a lot of the studies do shed light on veterinary technicians because they seem to really show every example of how things can be right and wrong in a hospital. So as you were talking about that, it made me think about um, this idea. And what I really, I was starting to kind of and a lot of times this is how my brain works, you know, thinking laterally. And I was thinking about with vet triage and what you guys do and how you're leveraging DVMs, um, you know, to take calls. My good friend, uh, he's part owner in a company called Preventive Vet. So Dr. J, J, uh, Jason Nichols, amazing guy. He's up in Portland. I hope he's safe right now. I haven't talked to him in a while. So everything's good up there with all the fires and all the, the craziness that's going on. But when we, when we chatted, we talked about this idea of potentially leveraging vet techs to help on the preventive side, right? So maybe they're depending upon, and again, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe this is a new idea I'm giving for vet triage. So, <laughs> so all right. I'll, I'll take, I'll take the, I'll just, you can just send me the check when it, when it makes <laughs> millions. But, um, but you know, one thing we talked about is, you know, you could easily, you know, you could easily dig into the laws and regulations in each state as to what a vet tech is allowed to do. And then maybe there is some sort of almost like vet triage call that you could have set up for the vet tech. So you could offer, hey, you know, because how often does a, a practice get questions about, hey, I'm pregnant, what sort of things should I avoid, like with my cat? And, you know, all there's all, you know, all these questions about uh, when women are pregnant and being around animals and what does that look like? Well, is there a way to educate a vet tech in a way that's, you know, certain lines and things that they can say, yes, here are our recommendations, you know, help with the preventive side of care in a way that is within the le their legal bounds and within their expertise and overseen by their primary doctor. But if you can leverage them and again, maybe allow them to get out of the hospital, especially now that we're seeing with COVID, you know, there's a lot of hospitals I work with where they're rotating staff, right? They're, they have people working from home, receptionists working from home. Um, there's actually a hospital in Colorado Springs where it was like they had to hire, the call volume got so big, especially during COVID, they had to hire an additional receptionist and they just had her working from home, taking calls and setting appointments and stuff. But so is there a way to provide this work-life balance with a vet tech where they can provide some value and maybe, you know, we talk a lot about the different compensation rates in vet med, whether it's salary, pro-sal, or just production only, you know, maybe in this case, there's a bit of that pro-sal thing. Well, hey, for every, you know, preventive medicine call that you do or whatever, you know, we can give you a cut of that fee and another way to raise their, their rates. Again, I don't have the answers, but just trying to think outside the box. Yeah, we've, we've had, we've had um, for vet triage, I think two or three veterinary technicians who have applied for any kind of work with vet triage. 
and, uh, and it, it, very flattering. Uh, the reason why I think maybe we're seeing not that big of a response as opposed to the 100 veterinary resumes that I currently have waiting for me to look at is because veterinary technicians, um, I think, are a lot more on the hands-on side of things. P- part of the reason why they love their jobs is they work with pets. And it's different than, than me performing veterinary telemedicine where I'm fully satisfied as a doctor, as a person, giving advice all day even though I'm not physically touching the pet or physically fixing them. Whereas a veterinary technician, and again, this is my observation over the 14 years, part of their passion is being able to actually touch and feel the pets, do things for them, give them the medication they need, change the bandage that they need change, give them this injection, walk them outside, see how they're doing, give them love during their stay at a hospital. Or if you're a veterinary technician who goes to people's homes to take care of their pets at home, administer subcutaneous fluids or give, give a, a, a cat a pill that the owner can't do, they're still physically there doing something good for the world, you know, in, in, in by way of taking care of the pets. So I don't know how gratifying it would be to do more of a, of a telemedicine type ordeal. However, I will say that when we've done our research with veterinary for vet triage, we noticed companies that offered telemedicine, not in a video sense that, that we do, but texting or emailing or phone calls, and the way that they advertise the, their veterinary professionals on their website seems to be a little bit on the sketchy side. So, so I think most consumers, if they are purchasing a session with a veterinarian via text or phone call or email, and the website says something like, you know, we have veterinary professionals on hand, I'm not sure those are all veterinarians. You may actually be having veterinary assistants, veterinary students, veterinary technicians on the other end answering your questions. Maybe they know from prior experiences enough to answer the question appropriately. Maybe they're going on Google and looking up on websites and trying to get the answers, not sure. So, so the, the, I think there already is a, a market for them that's already in existence, although maybe it's not being as transparent as, as they should be, but I'm, I'm all for whatever we can do to help improve the technician quality of life. I'm just not convinced that they, that they would find complete satisfaction if they were physically away from the pets, but no one knows it hasn't been, it hasn't been tried. To, to your point previously about changing compensation uh, benefits or manners by which they're paid, you can, as a veterinary technician, move up into, the, into sort of more of a management position at a hospital. That tends to be the next, the next step, so to speak. If you're a veterinary technician, you're seasoned, you're at, the, at your peak of, of what they can pay you as a technician for that given area, the next step for you tends to be, as long as the management feels that you are good with dealing with conflict and people is moving up to manage a position, which is going to be better pay, better benefits, right? Better title. Problem with that is going to be that you're no longer working with the pets anymore. Now you're managing the people, which is like the technician's worst nightmare. That's not what they're in for. So there's a certain, um, there's a certain amount of kind of cash 22 where you like working at this hospital. We love having you. We want to give you more. We can't give you more unless we change your title and your responsibilities to, to justify that, but you're going to be in a position that's no longer what you were doing before, which is maybe why you got into the field to begin with. So, so there is upward mobility. It just literally is a different job in that same clinic. So that was just to the, to the point earlier, but I, 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 I am actively looking in vet triage for ways to do exactly what you're suggesting. If there's a, if there's a problem with the veterinary, field in a brick and mortar facility that we can improve 
I would like to do that. It's a, it's a matter of trying to talk to veterinary technicians and see how would the space of telemedicine positively benefit them. Yeah. Yeah. It, and uh, again, it's circle this back to the work that Josh Weissman does with his four P's of positive psychology. You know, one thing that he, we've talked a lot about is this idea that you can find, you know, the work that you do on the day-to-day there's ways to find meaning and value in that work to really help. And that meaning and value is what's going to drive you more than the underlying paycheck. And what is interesting is I had actually never really thought about it from that perspective that, and I guess I had known, but I had never really put the pieces together. And you, so you had kind of linked this together that for a lot of the vet techs, you're right, that they're maybe the telemedicine thing or the preventive medicine conversation isn't really there for them because what, maybe what provides them value or meaning is this actual interaction with the pets on the day-to-day um, being there, touching them, being in close contact with them. Um, maybe in a lot of cases, probably establishing relationships with them, right? Like our neighbor's dog, this uh, big dog, Theo, like I, I always go out and look for him, you know, like, it's like, got to have treats for Theo, you know, cause he just, he, you know, he's this big, I don't even know what he is, but he's a huge dog and he looks really intimidating, but he's super sweet. And you know, as I think about my own personal uh, relationship with animals and like my dog and my neighbor's dog, you're right. Like that, you know, we joke a lot about the puppy appointments, right? Like when we talk about the mental stress in, in vet med and how do you go from a euthanasia appointment to a puppy appointment, you know, and I've had some doctors use the term like, well, I just imagine that no matter what's going to happen, I always imagine that my next one is a puppy appointment, you know? And so again, I think it just, when I start thinking about all these conversations I have, I think you're really right that this idea of interacting with the pet, pet close in hand, trying to provide them a better care of life, trying to fix their problems that is a big value set and a big meaning set. And we may be taking that away, but it doesn't mean that we can't find ways to do it either or maybe balance it. But I think you're right. It's a very valid point. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, one, of the, one of the great things about veterinary medicine is how flexible it is. You just, if, if you can be as creative as you want to be and chances are you can make it work within the field. It's, it's fantastic. <clears throat> just, just the veterinarian themselves can work for anywhere from a laboratory vet to a pharmaceutical vet to academia to clinical practice it, it's there's so much versatility in the field and so i think if we were able to as a field hold on to telemedicine or rather i guess welcome it with open arms and and start to develop it as we probably should have done two decades ago i think you'll end up seeing a whole new avenue of of different careers different positions that veterinary receptionists assistants technicians and doctors can have a whole a whole different dimension of veterinary medicine if we explore it further yeah yeah i think you're right um and actually locally here uh dr rob trimble he runs the veterinary entrepreneurship academy and so i would love your thoughts on this because you kind of said it organically that there's a lot of opportunities outside of just being an associate or maybe just working in a practice day-to-day or practice ownership and one thing that i love that dr trimble and um that he's doing and he's outside of csu here in fort collins is that he's allowing these third and fourth year students to really look at other problems in veterinary medicine that could potentially be solved with a business that are outside of general practice. And I think that they're probably, you know, I haven't gone to vet school, but I'm assuming if I was right, like like if I was like, you know what, I want to be a veterinarian. My first thought would be 
I am going, you know, I'm going to work in a practice. I'm going to treat animals. That's the career. I don't think about all these ancillary things that would go on. You know, like one thing I would love to do is eventually hire my own chief veterinary officer, right? Like somebody to really, as a technology company that's supporting the vet space, I would love to have a DVM on staff, not only to be, I think the selfishly to have an internal DVM for my own staff, right? So we have our own internal doctor for our pets and that that would be part of the employment agreement, but um but also to have somebody there that's really on top of the medicine and what's going on having worked in the field and really, you know, I can do my best, but I haven't gone down that education route. I haven't worked as, as a practice, you know, associate or owners, but that aside, I would love your thought process and how did you come to realize that there are all these other options and ideas and potential businesses that you can do as a DVM outside of just general practice? Yeah, if you had told me even five years ago that I would be doing full-on telemedicine, you know, I would think you're crazy. I mean, I'm not a tech person. I'm not a computer person. I, I, you know, I prefer to be outside and doing stuff, interacting with people. And to think that now my, my 14 years of career with, 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 with fairly extensive training, a lot of many, many years spent devoted to it, um, <laughs> to, to doing something where I'm at home in front of a computer all day long, video chatting with, with people and their pets. It, uh, I would have thought you were crazy if you had told me that. So yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing how, how things turn out that way. So the, the scope of what you can do as a veterinarian is um, based on, it starts in vet school. So you, as you go through vet school, um, if you just pay attention, you'll notice that there are veterinarians in all different all different professions because they'll come and lecture at your school. You have some that are pharmaceutical people. You'll have some that are business owners. You'll have some that are research folks. They'll, you know, and you start to realize really quickly, oh, wow, these are veterinarians who are doing unconventional veterinary medicine. So it's, it's great that we have that. And what's also great about it too is that it, the, the, the um, financial like boom to the pet world is huge in the United States. It's massive. The amount of money that's spent on things from food to clothing, to medical care, to boarding facilities, to spas, it's massive. And so all you need is some imagination as a veterinarian to think, well, I, here's what I like about the veterinary profession. Here's what I don't like. How can I create a career, still be a doctor, but create a career around my likes and dislikes? And you can just do it. You can just do it. Do the appropriate research. You know the field. Go ahead and execute. So even though telemedicine has been around for a very long time, um, I realized that I'm feeling as fulfilled, if not more fulfilled, doing telemedicine, even though I'm not physically fixing broken bones or, or making do- paralyzed dogs walk again. Boy, it seems to be very satisfying, very satisfying. And the amount of appreciation that you get from the clients is absolutely astounding. Just if you look at like our Facebook page of people who just post stuff and we don't tell them to do it, they just unsolicited. I get emails back weeks later pick a collage of their pet and how they've been since since our 10 minute session three weeks ago like it's it's amazing it's amazing and so it's one of the many ways in the veterinary field you can receive that positive feedback that that really that that really substantiates the work and dedication you've you've shown in the field to become what you are today it tells you okay this is why i'm doing this this is exactly why I wanted to be a veterinarian was for this, this moment, this clarity, this time of, of real appreciation from pets and their pet owners during a time of need. 
Yeah. So have you, uh, have you read the book Blue Ocean Strategy? No, I have not, but I would love to. Yeah. Great book. Um, and what's fascinating is that the book talks a lot about creating a blue ocean. And so the, the premise is, is looking at, I guess the easiest, easiest example is they talk about the wine industry and the wine industry has been, you know, there's of all the wine, wines and spirits and beer, if you, all the alcohol consumption, wine, it was about, has been about a 30% of that market share in the u.s anyways i'm not sure about other countries but in the u.s it's been about 30 percent, and it has stayed stagnant for decades like there really isn't a lot of new people coming in it seems like maybe as generations pass they maybe have passed some of the wine tasting onto their children and so it's just kind of this has stayed flat and so they talked about a yellowtail and how this Australian company was thinking about how to create their own blue ocean and enter, enter into a market that was heavily saturated and, and to bring new customers from beer and spirits into the wine market. And so they did exactly what you talked about, you know, look at the problems in the market. And what they found was, is that the wine industry as a whole was very much focused on this very, high-end, high-end experience with wine drinking, right? Like understanding the terroir and the different flavor notes and where it comes from. And as somebody who really loves fine coffee, I can appreciate a lot of what the wine industry does because you start to understand how different coffees taste differently from different regions. And can you pick up where coffee's from without seeing the label and that sort of thing. And what Yellowtail had realized is that for most beer drinkers is that they they just liked beer. It was simple, you know, it tasted good. And so what Yellowtail did was they crafted a wine or a couple of wines, a red and a white that were more fruity. And they were, they were more, they didn't talk about where they came from. They didn't talk about all that. They just said, you know, it's like they focused on the fruit and the sweetness of it, which then opened up this massive customer base who had never even thought about wine and, you know, turned it into this billion dollar enterprise. But with that story, I think what it is, is it just realizes that there are a lot of blue oceans out there. And if we think about the problems that an industry is having, and if we can kind of step outside of our box, what are some different ways to approach it and to kind of create our own blue oceans? Absolutely. And if you ever hear anyone make, make the ridiculous comment of, well, we've, we've pretty much tapped into everything we can in this profession, or oh, we're done here, we figured it all out. You're out of your mind. You got in mind, there's, there's so many different ways that you can take a, a, any given career or profession or service and start a whole new thing from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, another example that I, that I always thought of was uh, that, that clothing company, the um, Untucked people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Untuck it, the shirts. They're meant, it, meant to be, un- yeah, yeah. Are you kidding? It's <laughs> genius. It's one premise. Yeah. Let's make yeah. an entire company and wardrobe around one premise that the shirts are, are untucked. I yeah. mean, it's not even a thing. That's just an action. That's just a way of wearing a shirt. And they took <laughs> made a whole, it's, it's, and I, you know, I read their story on one of my many flights in one of those airplane magazines. And yeah. I'm like, so silly. It's so great. And then there you go. Success. So yeah. yeah, even something as simple, seemingly simple, and in, but genius like that, you can you can do, and just a matter of just take an aspect of a profession of a, uh, and or a service, what annoys you about it, right, and then fix that. There you go. Yeah. There's enough people that are going to be annoyed at the, at the same thing. 
that you are, that you'll probably be successful if you do it right. Yep. So, and I, th- I think, you know, and this is, I would love this. Uh, I would love your feedback. And so to kind of add a personal antidote on the question I'm about to ask you is that, you know, as I just started, started looking at creating a cybersecurity and data protection company within the vet space, I had so many colleagues within the technology industry that are like, dude, you're crazy. Why would you do vet med? Like, why not focus on like you, you know, you have a legal degree, you've already done some work in human medicine. Why not focus on human medicine because they have HIPAA requirements and they have all this stuff. And I'm like, but for me, it was a, I have, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, A's because I just love the veterinary space. I mean, I get to meet so many amazing people and uh, the, I think the people of the industry more than anything is what I really enjoy. But I also saw that there was a problem. I also saw that there was a major issue with most practices, A, don't not, they don't think they have any data that's of any value and B, they haven't taken the necessary steps to protect it because they just think, God, oh, nobody's going to want my data. Nobody's going to want to attack me, but that's just not how it works. But what I would love from you as somebody who decided to switch and make this pivot, you know, I think one thing you have to be willing to do as you look at your creating your own blue ocean is be willing to take the feedback of people who are saying you're crazy, but believe in it enough to keep moving forward. So when you pivoted and kind of got into this telemedicine space, did you get a lot of that kind of feedback from the industry? Like, did you have any of those moments where you, you know, somebody said to, something to you and they really made you question it, but you're like, no, I got to keep charging ahead. Well, so, so I, to, to go back to, to you and, you, and you, your, your newfound career choice, I admire it because even somebody who's been doing this as long as I have, who's worked every single part of a veterinary clinic, um, I did not even realize cybersecurity was a thing that we had to worry about. No idea. And I've been doing this for a very long time and managed hospitals and been part owner of a hospital. And still, I had no idea until till you and I met that that was even a, a thing that we had to consider. So, so kudos to you. And I, the, clearly to me, even though it's only one person, that tells me that there's clearly a void in, in that. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Yeah. You know, how did I not know about this? I've been managing this for, I've gone through several types, different variations of even electronic medical record systems, several, several. I've, I've probably gone through all of them and not one mention of cybersecurity ever in any orientation, in every rolling out of a new program or software ever. So yeah, fantastic. And, 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 and I imagine one of the difficult things you'll have is what I'm having, where it's convincing veterinarians practice owners that it matters that it's worth the investment that's going to be the biggest thing so that so that brings me into your your question um i did not receive any negative feedback or doubt from people in the actual field anybody who hears the the idea thinks genius obviously we need that like obviously the same way we look at uber or lyft and think well obviously we needed that no one liked taxis no one liked taxis obviously that would have been that would have been a successful endeavor so there's not a problem there. It's more on the legal side that we're seeing a lot of the, the doubt in reviewing, in, in, in reviewing the research and creating the foundation for what can be done with veterinary telemedicine within ethical and legal boundaries. We realize very quickly that the laws are seemingly anti telemedicine. That's how I view them. So the way the laws are set up, the majority of states don't even mention telemedicine in their laws. The handful that do mention it sparingly. And the ones that do mention it, tell, tell the telemedicine doctor that you can't do all these things. You can't do all these things. 
you can do a very small subset of what the profession needs, which is tele-advice or tele-triage, but you can't do anything else. But if you do any other things, if you break those laws, you're penalized the same way a brick and mortar facility is penalized. That to me seems utterly insane and unfair. And the, one of the, the, the short-term goal of that triage is to help pet owners, help, help pets, help uh, uh, doctors who need to have answering service for after hours, things like that. The long-term is a spearhead entire movement. We don't, we're not looking to just create a successful company and provide quality of life for veterinary staff, provide medical care to pet owners and clients to prevent, to, to provide quality of life to hospitals who are always on call after hours and they shouldn't be. But our long-term is to change these laws, update them, because it's, it doesn't seem to be that, when you read the laws, it seems fairly obvious that there's no respect or professional regard to veterinary telemedicine. It's seen as a sort of thing that's sort of there, but no one really wants to talk about it. And so that's where all the doubt comes from, is from the legal, from the statutes, the state-by-state state state statutes. And then, and then on, on, a more, on a more nationwide level, organizations like the AVMA and FDA, fairly similar. Although I will say that AVMA get, went into a lot of detail on their site with the information on telemedicine. So that's, that's great. Um, but we need, we need laws to change. We need, they're, they're antiquated. They need to be updated. And so we're hoping to be able, especially with these current pandemic times, prove a point that veterinary telemedicine has, has a potentially huge impact, positive impact on that sphere, whether you're talking about clinics, doctors, pet owners, and where not to be viewed as competition, but more of an ancillary, ancillary service that can help grow a practice. And that's, that's, that's what, what our, our long-term goal is. So the doubt came from the statutes is what, where they came from, the legal side of things, really. Is, is you know, and you make a, you know, and again, to kind of think about both the industries that we're in. What I think is amazing about that is a lot of times we create, from a legal standpoint, you're creating, you're wanting to create statutes and laws to protect somebody, right? The idea is to put some protections in place. And so I can think about it from a state statutory standpoint and to put my legal hat on and say, well, I can understand, right? Because we don't want some charlatan out there just giving bad advice over the phone. And then at the end, it leads to the a death, of, death of a dog. And then we get into the legal issues of, well, a dog is just considered, or cat is just considered the chattel of that individual. And so how do we really, you know, outside of blatant animal abuse, where we get into like dog fighting and some of the specifics around those statutes, you know, how do we manage this loss of this personal item because from a legal standpoint it's almost no different from your car or your your backpack right it's just seen as the animal is just seen as property but yet we know from a societal standpoint that that animal has way more value than any any other intangible object right because that animal has life and there's a bond there so i i can see the, the all the gray areas and the issues there but, um, and actually still somebody I need to introduce you to, and I, I finally tracked down his information. So I'm going to make the introduction because I think you guys should definitely talk is Dr. Roland Tripp. And he is in the exact same boat as you is in that. And he's been saying this since I think the eighties, um, longer than I've been alive is that the laws need to change, but the laws need to change in a way that what's going to happen is the laws are so restrictive in the U S is that we're going to hurt the professionals like yourself and we're going to allow charlatans to set up shops in places like the Caribbean and 
um, places like, I mean, heck, I mean, you can call a doctor like France and Australia have really opened the doors to veterinary telemedicine. And with the age of the internet, who's to say that maybe a veterinarian is going to say, well, I see what's happening in the U.S. market. I'm not governed by U.S. laws. If I set up a Zoom call and give them telemedicine advice, I'm in France. Come hunt me down, you know, right? Like, so, or somebody who's going to pretend to be a doctor, set up shop somewhere in the Caribbean where there's really no laws and they're going to start making a buttload of money, not even a DVM, not licensed, giving bad advice. And so if we don't get ahead of it and think about making those changes, understand that by protect the best way to protect the end consumer is to allow professionals like yourself the opportunity to, to craft it and build it right. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the argument that, well, if we, if we open up the, the floodgates on a, a whole new branch of veterinary medicine, like telemedicine, that we're going to have these bad people who are going to have bad intentions and do things unethically. The, the, what profession doesn't already have professionals that are unethical? There's, there's plenty of bad veterinarians out there. There's plenty of bad MDs out there. There's plenty of bad lawyers out there. There's plenty of bad mechanics. There's plenty of them. And so you do the best you can. It doesn't mean that you ignore an entire professional branch of, of, of a professional field. You, you, you let that thing grow knowing that there's a need for it. And then you create statutes and guidelines around it and regulations around it. That's how you do it. There's always going to be bad people, you know, so to not venture into something that's brand new out of the fear that the bad people are going to find ways to exploit it. Yeah, they're going to, they're going to, and just outnumber them and create laws and you, you they, they, they'll understand that if they get caught doing something bad, they get punishment for it. That's, I mean, I mean, can it get any simpler than that? <laughs> yep. It doesn't make any sense. These, these arguments, you know, and, um, and yeah, you know, part of the, part of the regulations that we see in, in America also you can relate to the kind of pharmaceuticals too, you know, the, the, the path to developing a new medication and getting approved for human use in, in the United States is strenuous. It's expensive. It takes a long time. I mean, look at the coronavirus vaccine that, you know, they're trying to rush it and rushing it is like, what, a year or two? I mean, a year or two is a lot of time. But when, when, it, when you look at the way the FDA designs it for safety purposes, it's a very long time to get a, a, a pill from the, from the lab rat to the human, you know. Um, in Europe, it's, it's, it's a much more s speedy process. And so we will frequently, there are plenty of examples of medications that are approved in Europe that here are being still looked at and data comes out from Europe showing, you know, the, the pros and cons of this medication. And there's a subset of, of, of patients here, whether it's human or animal, doesn't matter, that can benefit from that medication is one of a kind, yet we can't get it because, the, because it's where we were so strict here. For good reason, I suppose, probably the, probably the huge amount of lawsuits is the reason why we're very uh, slow moving on these things. And nobody wants a drug to be out there sooner than it, than it needs to be for safety purposes. At the same time, people and animals are dying because they don't have medication. So it's like, it's like, what do you do? How do you balance that? But we tend to be here very strict. I, I even looked at the laws in, in the veterinary laws in Canada too. There's clearly a lot more laxity there than there is in the United States, clearly. Um, and so we, we, are, we are a little bit on the tighter side. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But if it's, if it's, preventing, if it's preventing entrepreneurship, it was preventing creativity. It was preventing a, a new branch of, the, of a profession that maybe it's too tight. Maybe it's too tight, you know? And for somebody like me who is putting my all into a company that's one of a kind, the only one of its kind at this point, and risking 
making some some lawmakers angry because I'm trying to stretch the limits here and push the limits to to start a whole new movement, which will turn into a, a whole new branch of veterinary medicine. It's it's a little scary to do that. But how else do you get change unless somebody sticks their neck out and says, okay, I'm willing to risk my personal finances, my license, my credibility on a project, on an idea that I believe in. Here we go. Get, yeah, get. it's amazing though. Yeah, it's amazing. And I support you 100% because I think you're, you're right. It's definitely something we need. And, you know, I think, I think the iTunes example and what Apple did with digital music is a great example of how to solve a problem and make it regulated and everybody benefits, right? Because leading up to iTunes, what was the problem? Everybody was downloading music on Napster and they were file sharing and the music industry was bleeding and they're like, how the heck do we stop this? Right. And iTunes came in they're like, well, if we made it easier, so if we provide the best platform to find any song you wanted, allowed you to do- download songs individually, we, they looked at all the problems with file sharing and then we charged you a nominal fee. Everybody, the musicians getting paid, we're getting paid. And now look at it. It's, you know, Apple, I mean, their own iTunes isn't their only product, but they're a trillion dollar a year company. Right. So a lot of times it's thinking like, okay, you know, if we're worried about other, again, I think it's just the idea of like, if we're worried about consumers in the U S getting bad advice, what it's going to happen is it's going to, it's going to come from bad advice from people outside of the U S who aren't bound by the laws and restrictions in the U S and that's where it's going to happen because we're just handcuffing professionals like yourself to be able to do it the right way, to build the iTunes of veterinary tele- telemedicine to solve a problem that is really there, that is really there. And what I also think is interesting is listening to you talk about it is we have all these laws and restrictions about practicing medicine. And, I, and don't get me wrong, again, coming back to my point, there's a reason behind it. There's a reason we create these statutes. Um, but then I think about like data and the, like with the exception of a, a handful of states, I mean, California being one of them, and then a, a number, a handful of other states have kind of copied it. But California came out with the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Protection Act. But from a federal level, we have no data protections on the end user, but yet we're so stringent in these other areas. So sometimes it just, when I think, when I think, sit back and look at like what we're doing from a governmental standpoint or statutory sta- statutory standpoint, I'm like, we're so worried about the consumer on one end but yet we don't care about the consumer on the, on another end. So where, where are our morals, where are our values and where do we draw the line? Yeah. So, so two, two, two points to that. Um, I, I, I want to touch back on, on having pets being classified as property, right? Um, because clearly they're, we, we don't react to them as being property when they get abused, right? You see a car vandalized during a riot, you're not thinking, Oh, poor car. But when you see an internet video of a dog being abused, I mean, the internet jumps on that like you wouldn't believe. And within like a day, that person is found, right? And, and, and convicted. So, but yeah, we don't want them to be considered as family or as people because they're not. And then of course, then that opens the gates for insurance companies and, and it changes the whole financial dynamic. So why can't we create a new branch where there's an identification that's not property, but not human, right? So we care about this living being they're more than a car, but we can't treat them as if they're human because they're not. Let's create a whole new thing in between. And then that way there's, then, then, then you have that. You don't have maybe insurance companies jumping on it, but you can create laws to protect 
animals who are abused against people, right, have actual like real statutes against them. It just like, come on, like, just think about it, create a new thing then. Now, I'm of course not, an, I'm not an attorney, so I don't know, maybe there's reasons why you can't just create a whole new subset of individual, um, but it seems to be that they fall in this gray space, so let's just, let's just fill that gray space with some facts, make it, a, make it an actual structure. The, the second thing is, uh, to your point with regards to protecting one end of, of a, uh, of, of, of a um, professional um, uh, interaction and not the other end. When you look at veterinary medical boards, this is, I've had this soapbox for a long time, and you look, go to their websites, state-by-state state veterinary medical boards, and you find out what their mission is. The mission always to protect the pet uh, a consumer or client against a bad doctor. There it is. That's where it ends. It's one-sided. Why? So who's protecting the veterinarian then? That's the case. Is every single medical board case that's submitted by a pet owner justifiable in saying that the veterinarian is clearly the bad guy and we need to, we need to make sure this poor pet owner is protected? That's not the case. There are really bad pet owners too and a doctor who did their best. So why is it that their mission is blatantly one-sided? This is like every state. Why is their mission one-sided? Where's the, where's the medical board saying, we're here to uphold the ethics of veterinary medicine on both sides of the aisle through due process or whatever, whatever court process you use? Why is it one-sided? Why is it there? Why are we protecting both sides of the equation or penalizing both sides of the equation? So there's, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong with that. And that's what kind of what your comment reminds me of is, is, is medical boards and how they, how they set themselves up as far as defining what their mission is. Yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, thinking about it, a lot of times I think it comes, you know, you talk about Europe and you talk about Canada and, you know, in both, both of those countries, they both have tort reform. Right. So essentially putting caps on dollar amount caps on the certain torts that you can, that you can file. So if you're not legally involved or know what that means in your listening to this, a tort is essentially, it's not a crime, but you've caused some damage to somebody individually um, that, you know, there's no, so it's not the state versus Clint, it's, you know, person X versus Clint. Right. Um, And you're trying to suss something out. And in the US, we don't have tort reform. And so that's why like our medical malpractice insurance is so high. And it's a big topic that, you know, we talked about in tort, in, our, in my torts class was like this idea of, well, how do you, you know, if somebody's wronged, how do you figure out what that dollar amount is and how do you cap it? And it's like, but again, other states have done it, right? So we have states like you know, our countries like Canada and a lot of the EU in the UK and even the UK where we get a lot of our law, you know, our common law practices from, they even have tort reform. And so a lot of times I think it's simple things like that, right? Tort reform. But again, you have competing interests, right? Because if I was a tort lawyer, I'm going to be like, no, I don't want caps put on things because then that hurts my income, right? That hurts me individually. Um, And again, it's like, how do we start separating out our own interests and realizing like, dude, if, if we cap it at $250,000, whatever cut you're getting at $250,000 is probably gonna, is probably a lot of money. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah. So that, I mean, that's, again, I think that's maybe one place that we start is we start to look at, you know, tort reform in the country, in this country. And how do we look at saying like, yes, people are human. If somebody does something negligent, then yeah, there is, they can be charged for that, but there is a cap on the amount of money that you can consume. And that helps us kind of 
put an understanding as to how we look at these different cases and how we start to understand it. And um, I'm sure a lot of my friends who are actually actively practicing are probably like, shut up, you know, or they, they're, they're completely disagreeing with me, but that, that's my thought. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's great. I, n- I never heard of that word before. And I think that's exactly what is needed or how you would classify these medical board cases because they're not really criminal acts, but they should be addressed. I think that's fantastic. And I would say to the whole, uh, to what you brought up regarding um, financial caps, there, there's, there are many professions you can think of where people get into it not for the finances, not for the compensation, right? They do it because they care about a thing. And there are plenty of attorneys that do things that, that just seem to help the people. Um, and their, their goal is not really the bottom line. It's just to do the thing that they want to do, their passion. In veterinary medicine is no exemption. There's nobody who goes to veterinary medicine thinking, I'm just going to make a ton of money from this. They're going into it because they want to do good for animals and help pet owners and you know practice medicine and do do things. So I don't know if, if, if the attorneys that are worried about, and again, this is me speaking as an outsider, worried about their bottom line, then maybe that that branch of law wouldn't be for them. Simple as that. You know, you would definitely have, I think you would definitely get a, a, a influx of attorneys who want to dive into that world because because they may share for whatever reason, personal, professional, huge passion to join the vet med side of things, even though they know that it's not the biggest money-making aspect of, of an attorney, but you're making a huge difference and you're, it's a feel-good position and you're now, you finally found an avenue that you have passion for, I think you'd fill it up. I think you'd have the attorneys jump in on that. I, don't, I can't imagine it being a problem, but I think it's a great way of going about it. That, that's a fantastic solution. I had another solution too, I thought where, okay, if a client chases a veterinarian through the medical board for a malpractice, um, allegation and it's found out that the um that the veterinarian was actually in the right and the client is in the wrong there should be some sort of i don't know retribution or something on the vet side so there's a clause that says you you own fluffy and you felt like fluffy was wronged by this vet if it's found out that through evidence and medical records and all that 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 you actually are the person that falls because you didn't follow dr smith's orders then there's a penalty to you of $5,000, you know? So now how strongly do you believe in your cause now? Because, because I, I have a huge problem with, with folks attacking veterinarians um, because they feel like their pet was wrong when really it falls under the category of shit happens. Like it just didn't work out for you that way. It's medicine. You're not fixing a car. It, it's, there's a biological aspect that no human being can control. So because you feel like you were slighted and you want to blame somebody and the logical person to blame is the doctor, you're going to chase them. You're now creating at least a year's worth of anxiety to that veterinarian who did the best they could do with the possibility they're going to lose money. They're going to lose money. And the possibility, the best case scenario is that they don't lose their license or get a ding on the record. So at the end, the client leaves unharmed because they wrote a letter they lost the case. Oh, well, the doctor, a year, year and a half of anxiety, financial um, uh, 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 man hours put into writing documents and letters and doing research and trying to build up the case just to get back to where they were a year and a half ago, which is just having their license. It's insane that there's no kind of repercussions for the client who started that claim to begin with. It's so easy and it's basically free to do a claim like that. So that, that's another solution I thought of over the years for how to not discourage pet owners, but realize you better believe in your cause. If you truly believe you have a case here get, get, and you're found out that you're wrong, there's going to be repercussions to that. So are you really going to dive in? And I, it probably would cut it by half. 
Yeah. No, I think, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, and going back to that original thought that we were talking about with tort reform, because in the, in tort cases where, and again, it's a party versus a party, there is no retribution. Right. And a lot of times it comes down to one person is like, I know I've got a shit ton of money that I can spend on legal fees just because I want to def, you know, I, I want to do everything I can to take you out for whatever reason, whatever personal vendetta that I have. And I'm going to spend more than whatever winning this would actually be. And then the person in tort, it's not really, and again, our legal system is set up in a way that supposedly you're innocent until proven guilty. But in a lot of times in these cases, it's like, you're guilty until you spend the money to prove that you're innocent, and which just isn't right. And then a lot of times it comes down to, okay, well, who's going to be willing to spend the most amount of money to win their case when it comes down to these like person versus person cases. Now, on the criminal side of things, yeah, you can get in a lot of trouble if you file, you know, false criminal charges against somebody and there is retribution. And so it makes people think like, okay, am I going to be willing to potentially perjure myself and put myself in jail? Um, if I follow this, you know, if I really, if do I really believe in this claim, but when it comes to these party versus party tort cases, there just isn't a lot of yeah. I mean, there isn't, you know, you, you're like, great. I just spent so much money to prove that I was innocent and this other person was just being a jerk. You know what I mean? And yeah. they were trying to, they were trying to just prove a point or they're trying to be vindictive or whatever. And it, yeah, it's, it's just not right. And I think you're, that would be a right, a good step in the right direction is that if that person spends X amount of money and it turns out that it's in their favor, you should be able to, have to cover all their costs plus the time lost. Right. Um, yeah. If you're going to file these claims, because then it would really not only would it maybe it would help to lower the caseload on on our our justice system as a whole. Like if things actually ever go to court, it takes forever just because of so many cases that that we deal with on a day to day basis. So it would probably reduce the number of those cases and and in a lot of these other problems. And it, yeah, again, I think it's a great place to start. Um, I'm not working in that world day to day, but. Um, thinking about it from the outside and, and have, having worked with companies and been in situations where you're involved in these things, you're right. It's just, you end up spending a shit ton of money for pretty much nothing to prove that you are innocent in the first place. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's money spent, but also time spent. And so I'd be happy if it, if it came, if anyone listens to this and thinks, well, yeah, I want to take that, that challenge on, I'd be happy trying to help a way to quantify the amount of how to convert what the veterinarian goes through into a financial thing. That way, that, that way you have a, an actual formula to create the, the appropriate number by which that pet owner would get penalized for should they be found that, that their allegations are unjustified. I'd be more than happy to help with that. It goes beyond the financials, also emotional and temporal. Yep. Like it's a big deal. And then the mission statement clearly, is, it, it already starts off the bat with, with how, how, what, what did the vet do to you, to the pet, the pet owner? That's the mission statement. That's how you, that's how it's read. So it's read to me, very one-sided. Veneer's proof is guilty until proven otherwise. Um, yeah. It must be that the pet owner is justified right off the bat. It starts with that. And then, and then to decrease the number of cases, absolutely. Veneer boards usually meet like quarterly. They have a whole bunch of things on their agenda. They go through it. Maybe your case will or will not be discussed at that time. It doesn't get discussed next meeting, you know? And then you just have to sit there with that anxiety and worry wait, about it. wait. And I've had my share of medical board cases. I'm unfortunately uh, quite savvy with them now. I know how they operate. And so the anxiety is real. It's real. Not sleeping, not eating, you're losing weight, you're gaining weight, whatever it is. It's real. It's a problem. And it's so slow moving. 
and you're thinking, do I even have a career anymore? Am I a bad doctor? Did I do something wrong? You start to go through this whole psychological process. And so um, it's, 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 it's malignant on all fronts because it's, it's so outwardly unfair from the get-go. If it were fair from the get-go, I bet you that would alleviate a lot of the doctor's anxiety and stress over, over stressing about it over the next year, year and a half that follows. Yeah. And you know, what makes me think about it is, you know, inherently, I think people are, are good at their hearts, you know, it's in that everybody goes through certain scenarios and situations that make that makes them behave in certain ways. And so I think, you know, if we talk about the medical boards, I think inherently, they have good intentions, right? But how do we, but how do we get at those good intentions? You know, what are your thoughts around, you know, here, rather than, you know, in like in the case we were talking about where it's like you're kind of guilty until proven innocent. Again, it's like, so what was what was the justification? It'd be interesting to it'd be interesting to have this conversation with somebody who sits on a on a on a medical board and say, Well, why is it that you look at it from this perspective? You know, why have you taken that approach? You know, tell explain it to me. What has what has been it? Has it been just tradition? You know, was there some, some catalyst that started it and now it has just kind of boiled down to tradition or is there something else behind it? Right. Cause generally I would think, you know, like when I think about the different medical associations, like, uh, like the CVMA, like Diane, who's the executive director here and, and, uh, Stacy Santi, who is the president of the CVMA, I know it's not the medical board, but you know, they're a medical organization. Like I, I imagine that the, you know, the conversations I've had with them and what they're trying to do and how amazing they are. And I would imagine that somebody else who's involved in the medical space, I don't know, I just, I want to give them benefit of the doubt that they have the same good intentions. Oh. So I'm curious why it would be interesting to hear their opinion and what, why is it this way and how do we go about catalysting a better change? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I, I don't want to speak as if I'm sitting in those medical board cases with the people who are behind the scenes. I, I, but for everything that I, that I know about it is my own personal experiences, having been the victim in those situations to evaluating the laws. And of course it's impossible to not go on medical board websites when you're looking at the laws instead of a company like that triage. So my knowledge of it is somewhat intimate, but also peripheral. I can tell you my impressions of it are things like, uh, for example, I, I'm going to assume that maybe there needs to be new blood in those organizations. People who have been holding those positions have been there for a very long time. And maybe there needs to be sort of new way of thinking in there. Maybe we need young people, um, the young veterinary school graduates to jump in on those things, you know. Maybe it is just sort of tradition and just kind of laziness and whatever else. And, and then, and then if, if they are veterinarians who are behind the scenes in these organizations, how come they aren't seeing the same holes that we're seeing? So are, are, are we interpreting it inappropriately? Are we inherently biased? Or do they know there are holes, but it doesn't really affect them? They don't really care? So I would, I would love that. I would love it. There's also another interesting person maybe to talk to um, at some point would be my old mentor, um, uh, well, old previous mentor in Long Island, uh, Dr. Dominic Marino, who's, who's been in this sphere for well over a quarter of a century. And he may or may not be interested in doing, doing your, your podcast as well. But he'd be an interesting person to talk to to get his side of things, having been, in the, having been a, a major practice owner for many, many years and fighting multiple points in time of, of where the veterinary field has sort of given him, given him angst and he's, he's surpassed it. He, he knows about the medical boards far more than I do, having been in the field for much longer and governing many, many hospitals. His facility at one point had 200 employees. Like it's, it's a massive, massive hospital in Long Island. 
And so he might be someone worth talking to as well and see if he's interested in, in speaking about this because he's, he's, a, he's a true force in, in the field. So, yeah, I think it would be. Yeah, I think definitely it's a it's a conversation where I think it's a I think all conversations worth having. And one thing that I'm concerned about in 2020 and it seemed with all the, the strife and I think there are a lot of there are a lot of positive things. But one thing that worries me about 2020 is it seems that we can't come down that. that I worry that we as a society are starting to get to a point where we can't have difficult conversations, right? We can't sit down amongst somebody with somebody, have a difficult conversation where we may disagree, but walk away shaking hands and going out to dinner afterwards. We've lost this idea of, you know, as somebody who loves coffee, uh, coffee shops are originally called penny universities because you'd pay your penny, you'd get all wired on coffee and you'd go in and you just debate all the, the minds in your community and you would talk about things and you would hash things out, but you would come up with new ideas, right? And the idea of the term university comes from unity from diversity, right? I mean, that's the idea, but we've gotten to a point where now it's like we seem to silo ourselves and it's like you're immediately are the enemy if you don't, if you aren't in my silo. And yeah, so I think it's important that we should have these conversations. And, and I think it starts here, right? We'd start talking about it and being open to the idea of realizing that when we have a common goal, that we both believe that the pet owner and the pet needs to get the best care possible. So how do we come together to make sure that that happens in a way that's going to be best for everybody? Yeah, and what you're speaking about resonates, of course, in a, especially in the political field these days, right? The yes. whole thing. And at some point, I think we have to actually define what a conversation actually entails because we want to have a conversation. We talk about talking about a conversation then we, <laughs> you know, and then, and then and nothing concrete actually happens, it seems. So it would be nice to have, I think we are alluding to where you have a definition of what that entails. So, so let's, let's identify the problem. It's like doing a research paper in science. What's your hypothesis? What are we starting off with? And then what are the inherent problems in this specific field? What is the issues? What are the issues? What are the potential solutions? And we're not going to agree on all the problems. We're not going to agree on the solutions. But we have to come to a consensus and then merge those things together and create one final thing saying, okay, we figured out that these problems, we can all agree those are problems. The ones we couldn't agree on, maybe they're not as important or they can be dealt with later. We have all these potential solutions. We agree with 30% of them. There's 70% still need more okay, fine, we've got 50% of the problems agreed on, 30% of the solutions agreed on, let's, let's merge those worlds. Now we've made progress, mm-hmm. and then let's initiate that. Um, th- that that's, those stages don't really ha- seem to happen, you know? No. Yeah. I would love it where, let's say you had a, a medical board individual from any given state on your, on your podcast, and that conversation can actually be had where they can outline where their point of view is and the problems that they, as they see, because I'm sure they see their own problems in, their, in the medical board, have the veterinarian on the other hand, um, outline their perception of the medical board, what their problems are, let's see where those things merge and then maybe have some uh, solutions to those problems. Yeah. Like I need that. to put this together. Yeah, no, man. It would be be fun because A, A, because I'm a sucker. Like I love debate uh, and a lot of things that I'm interested. I love, like, I love hearing opposing opinions, right? I love hearing, okay, this is what one person says. This is what another person says, but what's, you know, okay, so what do I think? And uh, and again, I think it comes back to this one health idea. Um, I'm working with Dr. Kassara Andre and she's got uh, this project called Care for the Healer. And we've been working on these discussions that really kind of, that, 
really kind of get your mind to chew on some things. So uh, we just had a one health discussion with human medicine doctors and, and animal health doctors on psilocybin use in pets and MDMA and ketamine. And so kind of all these like, like interesting forward pushing discussions that really push the limits on what people want to talk about. But I, I think it's, that's where you, but that that's, again, I think that's where progress is made. So I need to put this together. I need to find, so I need to find a, somebody on a veterinary medical board who'd be willing to come on, just have fun, keep it, you know, talk about some serious topics, but no, at the end of the day, nothing's personal. We're just trying to come up with some great ideas and have an amazing conversation. If you're able to, if you're able to, um, and I can talk to him for you, if you'd like uh, talk to Dominic Marino. Uh, I'm sure he knows people personally on the medical board. And I would say probably the medical board you're going to want to hit, my guess is New York and California, because those are the ones that have the, probably the highest amount of uh, issues with clients accusing veterinarians of doing bad things, mm-hmm. New York especially. And I've practiced in both states extensively. So, and I've practiced in other states as well. And you don't even get the same sort of feeling from clients that they're out to get you. Whereas New York, for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that New York attitude, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course, the New Yorker through and through. So it'd be, it'd be great to see if you knew somebody on a, on, a, on a more professional and personal level would be willing to dive into this type of maybe, maybe uncomfortable conversation but a conversation that has to be had. Yeah, but I think it would be great. I think right. absolutely. Yeah, I've always lived by a term where it's like, if you if it makes you uncomfortable, then it's probably something I should do, right? And there's a lot of boundaries within that, right? Like you got to make sure that it's an, an ethical uncomfortableness that makes you uncomfortable, you know, like getting up in front of a group to speak or talking to a good friend about maybe a problem you're having in your, in the relationship together and, and hashing that out. Those kinds of conversations, of course, not like something criminal that makes you uncomfortable because you oh, know sure. it's a criminal act, but sure. I, I think it's assumed that we're talking yeah. about. Well, yeah. you never know these days, you know, it's like the cancel culture. You could say, Oh, you know, if you're doing something, yeah. Clint said that if you feel uncomfortable robbing a bank, you should go rob a bank. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, 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 no. And I'll add another dimension to this also is, is let's not forget the new veterinarians that are graduating from vet school. So there's a big shift from what their mentality is and in diving into the field for the first time as new doctors then when I graduated in 2006, there's a big shift and it's not a good one. They're afraid to do anything. They're afraid to do even basic veterinary care because they're being taught. And again, this is very peripheral. So I would love to be wrong, but I've got this from multiple veterinary students that they're being trained now that if any case of a pet is sick, that's, that's even remotely complex. You need to send it off to a specialist, send off to a specialist. You can't handle it, send off to a specialist. Whereas when I graduated, it's do what you can to the best of your ability until you hit a wall, then go to the specialist when it's beyond your ability. That's two very different things. And that's in a time span of what, 14 years that that's changed. Um, it's bad. And the reason why I'm saying in, in, in reference to what we're talking about now, the legal stuff is they're terrified of getting sued. They're terrified of having a medical board case against them because they did a surgery that someone like me, a board certified surgeon, could have done, but they did the surgery and they're allowed to legally do it. And it went wrong. And then the client said, well, you should have sent me to the specialist or else these problems wouldn't have happened. Now I'm going to sue you because you shouldn't have done that surgery. You clearly couldn't handle it because something went wrong. Um, I, and again, there are plenty of examples of that. That's ruining the, the, the new blood. The millennials are the workforce now. And, and, and whatever you think about millennials, the generation after that, it, we're not going back to what we were. It's going to continue. And so we're just scaring them. 
and, and we're not instilling any confidence in their knowledge and skills. They're doctors, man. It doesn't matter if they went to the best, best school or the worst one. They're doctors. And, and so we're, we're killing them. We're killing them. And, and it's, it's, it's one of many reasons why I think that venerary practice owners are having a hard time hiring doctors. There's, we're still graduating about 100 per class. And there's, I don't know, somewhere in the, in the 30s number of schools in the U.S. Where are they? 100 per class, 35 schools. Where are, the, where are the graduates? Why can't we hire them? And I think we're killing them. I think we're killing them. I think we're ruining. I think we're not taking into account what the generation's personality is like. I think we're not getting them prepared from vet school to become real doctors. And then I think that, that their knowledge base and skill set is not being cultivated at their new job by mentors, by doctor, doctors who should be their mentors. So we're just, we're just killing them. So we have a negative culture being propagated by whatever, laziness and, and ignorance and whatever else. Uh, uh, the new blood that should be coming in and changing things, but they're terrified and not, not, not being trained the appropriate skills to handle it. And then this legal stuff that's like <laughs> against the doctor, you know, like when it all connects, you're like, this sucks. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think. So there's a corporate group, and actually listening to you talk about that, I mean, I think there's definitely probably more more to the story. I th- I think there's more to the story to actually validate what you're saying, and I think, and I had never thought about it because there's a from a technology perspective, there's a corporate group, a lo- very large corporate group. They're international, and one thing that I've heard is that a lot of new grads love to work for them because essentially they there's really I've had a lot of conversations with doctors about the art of medicine. And sometimes, you know, we get into the idea of, you know, technology can help us in some respects, but there's still this art aspect to actually treating a a pet and a patient and uh, or pet slash patient. But with this corporate group, essentially the new doc goes in, they key in the symptoms, what they're seeing. And what happens is on the back end, this corporate group has, because they have so many hospitals across the globe, it's basically like an AI database. And it says, okay, if you're seeing this symptom and this and this, it's going to be, it's 98% likely it's this. So do X, Y, and Z. And so it kind of gives them the formula formula to follow. But what I've also heard through the industry is that a lot of new grads like it. Again, I think because it's exactly what you're talking about. It's this idea of safely practicing medicine to say, hey, well, I'm I'm washing my hands of this because I put the symptoms into our system. I got the recommendation based on thousands of patients, hundreds of probably millions of patients across the globe. And that's why I took that action. But But what I've heard though, is that a lot of docs, they start out there, but then they realize that like, well, I didn't just go to school to key in a bunch of things into a computer and have it tell me what to do, right? Yeah. Uh, and again, back to this art, art and idea of medicine. So I think you're right that there is a lot to this idea that maybe we're potentially scaring our vet students early on. And so this, be, this way of practicing medicine becomes a safe haven for them and gives them some safety. But then they eventually realize like, I don't know if this is really what I signed up for, you know? Yeah. And anytime there's a new technology that comes out, like like the algorithm, uh, the algorithmic app that you're, you're speaking mm. of, um, I never want to say that, oh, like this is like, you know, a wholeheartedly bad thing for these reasons, because there, there probably is always some inherent goods as these things. There's probably a place for it. And I would say that where there's a place for an app like that or a program like that or a website, whatever it is mm. like that, would be the new graduate who understands that's not the, that's not the end all be all. 
but it's a good tool, just like having your textbook by your side is a good tool to use to try and get in a rhythm of thinking, but understanding, of course, medicine is an art, and over time, you're going to be, be able to formulate your own conclusions on how to handle a specific case, but this is a good starting point. You know, I, I, I'd be okay with that level of thinking. We, we, we don't have enough mentorship, um, experienced doctors who are willing to take the time and energy to train their new graduate, their new graduate hires. We're not doing that. We're getting frustrated that they don't know stuff already coming out of school, which, you know, how easy it is to forget what you didn't know when you graduated school, right? Even as an attorney, I'm sure you left there thinking, oh, yeah. Stuff like <laughs> in my head. I don't even know. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and actually, and I think most, it, it, to get her just a quick thought on that, it's like, and you know, most, most of my friends that have grad, you know, a lot of, I sat on this board um, and essentially it was victim outreach, which was a, a board here in Jefferson County. And I, on the board was the district attorney and his deputy DAs. But, you know, they always told me as I was going through law school, they're always like, well, don't really worry. Just make sure you get decent grades. You'll be fine. They're like, you really don't learn anything until you actually start to study for the bar. <laughs> That's when you actually learn everything. But it's just interesting because you're right. Cause you're like, okay, I graduated law school. What? And then you have to start. It's like when you're actually studying for the bar exam is when you start to put the pieces together. It, it's huge, of course. And then, and then, and then furthermore, when you get your first job, you know, and then you're, you have a mentor, mentors, and then you keep going through, then you mess up and you learn even more when you mess up and, you know, you keep going. And that's, that's, that's the natural evolution of something that is so complex, like, like learning law or learning medicine. It's freaking complex, man. Like there's no way to just, and then if you take into account, you know, the laws differ, I don't know, on a, on a national or federal level compared to state by state, you know, we have, we have how many species of animals that a veterinarian's in charge of? You want us to be experts in all of them? You know, well, that's not going to happen in four years. Not to mention taking what you know and actually turning it into an actual job where money happens. Like there's, there's, it's complex. And over time, there is an evolution of that. Yeah. I, you know, I, yeah. And, and all this ties in, as you can see, like it all ties into each other. Yeah. It's, a, it's not an easy problem to fix, but there, but when you break it down, it seems fairly obvious, at least during this conversation, that there's some obviously bad things and probably some easy solutions to those things. Just getting everybody yeah. on board would be the, the, you know, to agree and then implement would be the goal. Yeah. Yeah. So one final thought before we wrap up here, because I've taken a lot of your time today and it, it's just been such a fascinating conversation. And I think this is, I think this is the starting point, you know, think coming back to the idea of, of how do we start to make change? And I think it is, it's, we start to have conversations like this. We open up the door to more conversations. And I think really the framework, you know, we talked about this, well, what's the framework? The framework for me is generally like, okay, if we're going to have a tough conversation, know that I'm only attacking your ideas. I'm not attacking you personally. And after this, we have to hug because there's something about when you hug somebody, even though you completely disagree with them, it just kind of that maybe back to the vet tech thing, you know, where they're physically putting their hands on it. But when you embrace somebody that you disagree with at the end of that, it's like, okay, it kind of washes away all that tension. It's like, man, that was an intense conversation. But so um, with that being said, that was, it was amazing. Thank you for your time. So this is kind of, this is your info infomercial, you know, where can people find out more about you? What are you doing? Um, where can people get in contact with you? Well, th thank you for having me. This has been an absolute blast and I'm, I'm, I'm all yours for any future discussions you want to have. Absolutely. If I can help you with anything in any way, whatever you need. Um, I love what you're doing and I'm a huge supporter of it. I think, I think they're, I, they, 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 it would be great. If we look at this a year or five years from now, this was a jumping point to changing things in a more, on a large scale. So um, vettriage.com is my company. Um, it's a 24 seven, 
first of its kind and as of right now only kind where you can sign on within within a minute or two, meet with a veterinarian via video with proprietary software, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter how many pets you have, what species, what time of day or night, where you're located, it doesn't matter. And the idea is to provide teletriage or teleadvice. We're gonna tell you whether or not the symptoms you're seeing with your pet is a true medical emergency that warrants emergency care right now or if we can band-aid some things until your veterinarian is open tomorrow or next week. That's vet triage. Um, I have a, a, a extensive YouTube channel that's growing at plenty of veterinary education videos. It's meant for the pet owner. Not all of it is legal jargon. So if you're interested in just general animal education, go on my YouTube channel. It's Dr. Shadia Rafage, um, S-H-A-D-I-I-R-E-I-F-E-J. I have an Instagram, both my own, which is Dr. Shadia Rafage, or, and then there's also Vet Triage, it has its own Instagram. Then we've got the Facebook as well, same, same things. And feel free to jump on there and learn a whole bunch of animal stuff, see some cool things and whatever, whatever you need, we can, we can reach out and, and talk. Awesome. Amazing. So one, I said there was, that was my last question, but I do have one other question. A Rafage, what is the lineage of your family name? Yeah, my, my, my father is from Jordan and my mom's from Lebanon. Middle Eastern, and I was, I was born in Yonkers, New York. Um, awesome. And uh, yeah, so, so Middle Eastern family, huge family, and most of our weddings are like two to 400 people. Oh, that's awesome. We're massive. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. All across the United States, all across yeah. the world. Um, and so it's probably most analogous to like an Italian family. Get together, okay. large get-togethers, loud, a lot of hand, yeah. you know, gather yeah. around food, you know, kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I love, uh, I love Middle Eastern down to like Mediterranean cuisine. It's so good. We have a, uh, there's a couple really good restaurants here and uh, yeah, it's my, it's one of my favorites, but I'm really actually glad you pronounced it. Cause I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to stop this and remember how to pronounce his name so that I don't butcher yeah. it. You know, I, I, I had a friend who I was trying to go with Dr. I and um, then we had a lecture in school in Cornell. I asked the, the, he was a very successful practice owner. And I said, you know, what do you, what do you do about my name? Like, how do I, he goes, nothing. You stay with it. Dr. Arafish. People will learn how to say it. <laughs> like, Brilliant. Okay. Yeah, so that's awesome. Dr. Arafish. And that's yeah. it. People do learn. You're, if you have a client who absolutely loves that you just saved their dog's life, they're going to learn your name. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and exactly. And if you follow on social media, then they admire you that much. They're going to learn your name. So Yeah. Yeah, on that, on that note, I had one of our, the oncologists we were working with with our dog that had cancer. Her, she had a Scandinavian name. And so, you know, it's a bunch of consonants. And you're like, how the heck do you say your name? But it was Svilagoy. And it was always, you know, she's like, oh, just go by Dr. Gabby. But I like your, but you're 100% right because I learned how to say it, Dr. Svilagoy, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 Just, uh, you know, don't be afraid of it. It's your name. Love it. Put it yeah. out there. People will just learn. Exactly. They will. Yeah, exactly. Especially I can speak from experience. I had one that was tough and, but she, she made a big impact on our dog's life. And I, I did, I learned it and I'll never forget it. So awesome. Well, I hope to do this again. I'm definitely going to try to find a medical board person and see if we can have a conversation. Cause I think that would be really fascinating. And I've only done one other three person podcast before. So yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm down. Whatever you need, my friend, you let me know. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for your time. And again, thank you for being so flexible and switching to Friday with this freak snowstorm we had in the middle of summer here and knocking no out my internet, <laughs> but I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye.